Well, last Lord's Day, we considered Jesus' betrayal and arrest, his trial before Annas, the high priest, and the Apostle Peter's three denials. This morning, we come to the trial, Jesus' trial, before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. A trial which, we'll see, deeply revolves around the theme, the notion of Jesus' kingship. Friend, do not be thrown by the shame of King Jesus' cross. This is the hour the Son of Man is glorified. Chapter after chapter, John, Jesus has foretold this event uh, because Jesus' glorification and the hour of His death are one and the same. And now, the hour has come. So, don't be thrown, Christian, by the mocking, sneering sign that Pontius Pilate fastens above our crucified Lord's head. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It scandalized everyone who read it 2,000 years ago as they linked that sign with this bleeding, pummeled, naked wreck of a man. But for those with eyes to see, we see the deep irony of Pilate's pronouncement. This is, in fact, an announcement of truth to the whole world. The Apostle John has prepared his readers for this moment. We know, brothers and sisters, that the cross is simultaneously the glorification of Jesus, the throne upon which the King of Kings is crowned. It's his glory and the judgment of the world, the point of decision for all mankind. Jesus' cross is the dividing line between the condemned and the vindicated, salvation and judgment. And Christian, if you've placed your trust in the crucified and resurrected Savior, if you've placed your faith in Him alone, then you are united to Him. His death is your death, and His condemnation is your condemnation. If you have been united with Jesus in a death like His, you will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. But if you don't trust King Jesus, then you stand condemned, both by your sin and by your rejection of God's full offer of forgiveness. Friend, make no mistake. King Jesus rules. King Jesus reigns. He is the eternal king with an eternal kingdom. And kings have subjects. Subjects who must obey the king lest they be counted treasonous rebels. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? Have you bowed the knee in unreserved worship, adoration, and obedience? to Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. But to truly understand the significance of Jesus' kingship, this king who rules from a cross, we need to go back five days. We need to go back to John chapter 12. Would you turn there with me, please, in your Bibles? John chapter 12 and the account of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. 
This is a simple enough story. Our Lord comes to Jerusalem. He gets on a donkey and rides into town. Lots of people get excited, calling Him the King of Israel. They're waving palm branches all around, hence Palm Sunday. But there's a clue something bigger is going on here. Chapter 12, verse 16. At first, His disciples did not understand all this. And at first, we might not understand all this either, but it's essential that we do. It's essential that we see the significance, the significance of this event because King Jesus has come to Jerusalem to die for the world. And this is how chapter 12 links up with the events described in chapters 18 and 19. So look at chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the Passover festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And, and that little phrase holds great significance. Jesus made his triumphal entry on a donkey into Jerusalem. Not Caesarea Philippi, not Rome, not Bethlehem. It was Jerusalem. And that's because the fortunes of the entire nation are wrapped up in Jerusalem in a way that those other cities are not, not just politically, but religiously. Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the very focus of God's self-disclosure. Jerusalem is where the temple is. And the temple is the place where Yahweh personally meets with His covenant people. Nowhere else. It's in Jerusalem where animal sacrifices are made for the sins of Yahweh's covenant people. Nowhere else. It's in Jerusalem where the priests serve. Nowhere else. And during the times of the monarchy, it was in Jerusalem where the king ruled. The king who ruled in the place of God over his covenant people. So, Jesus is coming to the place where the king rules where God's special revelatory presence dwells, where the priests serve, and where animal sacrifices are made for the sins of the nation. But that's not all. There's a key moment in Jesus' ministry where He turns and He heads towards Jerusalem, and His disciples are shocked. They're scared. But Jesus very clearly explains His reasoning for going. I'll just read this text to you. It's Mark 10, 32-34. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him Flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So there we have it. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be captured. He's going there to die. He's going there to be resurrected. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to bring about the first Easter. That's Jesus' perspective. And of course, our Lord is following His Father's will in all of this. This is all in fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. But the cheering crowds have a very different notion of what's happening. 
chapter 12 of John's Gospel, verse 13. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. To the crowds, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised King of Israel who's going to establish God's kingdom. He's come to destroy the Roman Empire and allow the Jews to rule the world in prosperity and harmony with God forever. This is a red-letter day. Jesus of Nazareth is about to usher in the Davidic Kingdom 2.0. However, these people are hailing Jesus as their King without understanding the true nature of His kingship. Jesus is the King who dies on a cross. But that is just a repulsive, blasphemous thought to the Jewish mind, because Messiahs win. That's why they're waving palm branches in the air like it's a ticker tape parade, shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna means, give salvation now. As in, give salvation now from our Roman political oppressors. Right? But the crowds are actually cheering better than they know. But why in the world does Jesus enter Jerusalem on a young donkey? I mean, was Jesus tired of walking? It was just easier to find a donkey than to find a horse and chariot? No. This donkey is a deliberate decision on Jesus' part. It's all being sovereignly orchestrated because Jesus riding a donkey fulfills a prophecy by the prophet Zechariah hundreds of years before. If you would, turn to Zechariah chapter 9. This is the, the second last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah 9, 9 to 11. We're going to see a lot of fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in this chapter and in the next Zechariah 9, 9 to 11, God spoke through the prophet to give a picture of what it would be like when his promised king would come to Zion or Jerusalem. And this is what he says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. So, This picture is definitely of a king, a righteous and a victorious king whose rule extends to the very ends of the earth. A king who will bring peace to all the nations of the world and freedom for those who are imprisoned. But it's a very unexpected king. His righteousness and victory don't appear as strength or brute power, do they? He comes lowly, riding on a young donkey. Folks, you you can't go into battle on a donkey. You you can't destroy the Roman Empire on a donkey. You can't fight your way to the throne, killing all of your enemies on your way, and then claim your rightful place as Israel's king if your war horse is a donkey. But that's because King Jesus proclaims peace to the nations, not war. 
And of course, Jesus' lowliness doesn't mean he won't be victorious, ultimately, in establishing his rule. As the prophecy says, his rule will extend to the ends of the earth. His lowliness doesn't jeopardize that one bit. In fact, King Jesus' lowliness is the very means by which his kingdom is established. Peace is brought to the world, and the prisoners are set free. Look again at verse 11 of Zechariah's prophecy. Zechariah 9, verse 11. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. So do you see it's because of the blood of the covenant that all of this is going to happen? And what does Jesus say on the night before he was crucified during the Passover meal? Luke twenty two twenty, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. His own death will be the new blood of the covenant. Jesus saw his own death, brothers and sisters, as that ultimate atoning sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice that would free people from the waterless pit, bring peace to the world, and establish an everlasting relationship between God and all those who trust in it. Beloved, this is why, this is why King Jesus comes lowly into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. This is why King Jesus does not come into Jerusalem riding a war horse. He hasn't come to destroy his enemies. He's come to die for them and to offer them forgiveness, to offer them salvation. So the crowds are right. They're right to praise Jesus as king. He is the king. And they're right to cry, Hosanna, give salvation now. That's what Jesus has come to do. And yes, they're right to expect that Jesus has come to Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom. He certainly does. But where they're 100% dead wrong is how Jesus will accomplish this and ultimately when. And that goes for his disciples, too. The account finishes with them being very confused. Verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. But he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey? Jesus is the king, but he talks about dying and being spat upon? How does all this fit together? Uh, I bet just using our sanctified imaginations, that some of them tried to talk him out of this approach. Couldn't you just see Peter doing that very thing? Rabbi, uh, the optics of you entering into Jerusalem on a stinking donkey. Man, that's terrible. You look like a wimp. At the very, very least, you should brandish a sword as you walk into the capital under your own power. 16b, only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. It's only after Jesus was glorified in his death and resurrection that the disciples remembered the Old Testament prophecies, like the one from Zechariah we just read, and, how, and they understood how all these pieces of the puzzle then fit together. And so the king of Israel takes deliberate steps to enter into Jerusalem on a donkey. He does it deliberately, fulfilling rather different Old Testament promises than what the people were expecting. So, 
understanding all of that. With that as our foundation now, now we come to John 18, verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. And the reason why the Jewish leaders do this, of course, is because the superpower at the time is Rome. And Rome's power in Palestine is mediated through a military governor, Pontius Pilate. So Jesus is led now from Caiaphas, the reigning high priest, to the palace of the Roman governor, verse 28. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Passover is a one-day festival that extends into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that lasts for a whole week. And once it starts, uh, those who are observant Jews would want to be very, very careful. Uh, To enter into the home of a Gentile was likely to incur some kind of ceremonial impurity, which would mean they wouldn't be able to continue to eat the rest of the festival meals. Uh, They would have to wait until sundown, uh, go through certain ritual washings, and wait until the next day to, par- to uh, participate again in this, in, these, in this festival. So to avoid all of that, rather than risk that, uh, the Jewish leaders, they stand outside and have Pilate come out to them. But do you see the irony? And there is a great deal of irony all throughout these chapters. These religious leaders are straining a gnat and swallowing a camel. Uh, They're so concerned with ritual purity, but they couldn't care less if there's massive injustice going down with respect to Jesus. They're doing all that they can to have God's Messiah, the King of Israel himself, killed. But heaven forbid if they should contract some ritual defilement from Pilate's palace. Verse 29, so Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Which is rather a brisk way of responding to the governor. Uh, But only the night before, Pilate had provided them with a a detachment of troops to arrest Jesus. So they thought that Pilate was already on their side in this endeavor. And I think they rather expected Pilate just to rubber stamp their judgment uh, and order Jesus' summary execution and, 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 and uh, not begin now a new trial, which is what Pilate does. But Pilate's figured out that this is a religious beef. And he's not about to sit and arbitrate and judge on a theological matter between these Jews. Pilate said, verse 31, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, the law of Moses. I want nothing to do with this. But we have no right to execute anyone, they object. That was a a legal right, a prerogative held by Rome alone. And then John adds, verse 32, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. That is a very, very important verse because all throughout John's Gospel, Jesus often speaks of his death as as what? As being lifted up. It happens again and again. Uh, Think of John 3.14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that anyone who believes may have eternal life in him or 
John 12:32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is going to be lifted up. He's going to be lifted up on a cross. He's going to be crucified. And in the Roman world, crucifixion had massive repugnance associated with it. It's very hard for us to appreciate that, to understand just how repugnant crucifixion was. Uh, There really are no modern forms of execution that carry the same cultural overtones of shame that crucifixion did in the first century. Uh, It was a form of execution that you literally did not talk about in polite society. It's, it's not a big deal now, of course. I mean, cross earrings, cross necklaces, they're ubiquitous. They're absolutely everywhere, you know, on top of churches, on the side of hospitals. Uh, the thing is, we've actually, none of us have ever seen anyone be crucified. Uh, it's horrendous. You die a dog's death, hanging in unbearable agony, naked for days. And after you die, Rome would leave you your carcass there to rot, and birds would come pluck out your eyes, dogs would come and rip off your feet. In fact, it was such a horrible way to die that apart from Caesar's explicit sanction, no Roman citizen could be executed in this fashion. It was just too terrible. Only slaves and barbarians could be executed like this. And apart just from the sheer torture The cultural associations conjured up images of evil and corruption and abysmal rejection. The Jewish authorities want Jesus executed, and they want him to be crucified, a capital punishment that only Rome could authorize, which only this governor then could pronounce upon. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. So Pilate goes back inside the palace, he summons Jesus, and he asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Don Carson notes that in the exchange that runs between here and verse 36, there are three different notions of kingship being played upon. First, there is the kingship of Jewish expectation. We looked at this actually at Christianity 101 just this week. But God had promised one day that there would be a king from the line of David. That great Davidic dynasty, a king is going to come from his own line. This figure was sometimes called Messiah or Christ, anointed one. And many Jews thought that when he came, he would restore the nation to a certain level of political power. He would get rid of the Romans, justice would prevail in the land, and he would rule over the surrounding nations. This is what we just saw in John chapter 12. The kingdom of David would be powerful. It would be influential once again. So that's the first understanding that's going on. But Pilate, he has a different notion of kingship. He's thinking of Tiberius Caesar. And what worries him is anyone who challenges Caesar's authority. So if there's some new king who's advocating revolution or throwing out the Romans or not paying taxes to the Romans, then from Pilate's view, point of view, that's treason. And that person will be executed. You can be certain they will be crucified. That's sedition. Which means the Jewish authorities have to cast Jesus as a political problem, as a threat to Caesar. And that's precisely the tactic that they adopt. They charge that Jesus treasonously claims to be the king of the Jews 
in opposition to Caesar. Verse 33, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? In other words, Pilate, are you asking me this out of your own political world, or has someone put you up to this? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. And we're immediately reminded of John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. What is it you have done? Pilate asks. Which suggests that Pilate is less than satisfied with the Sanhedrin's charge against Jesus. Something's rotten in Denmark. He can tell. He, he doesn't believe for a second, a second that uh, the Jewish authorities would take such pains with someone intent on doing damage to Rome unless their own interests were at risk. There must be something behind the virulence of their animosity. Hence the question, what is it you have done? How did you, a Jew, so offend your own people? And in verse 36, Jesus acknowledges that, yes, he is a king, but then he describes his kingdom to show that he is not a military threat to Rome. He makes it very clear. Verse 36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrests by the Jewish leaders. <coughs> but now, my kingdom is from another place. Or, it's not from here. Jesus' reign does not have its source or origin in this world. In other words, all the kingdoms and centers of political strength that human beings construct trace their authorities to realities in this world, but not King Jesus. His kingdom, his ruling authority is from another place. And readers of this gospel know that that means from heaven. It's from God himself. And that's why Jesus' servants will not fight. His kingdom doesn't advance and become an empire the way the empires of this world achieve success. Military conquest has nothing to do with it. The kingdom of God does not advance by human armies. Whoever was in charge of organizing the Crusades back in the day needed to read this verse. They got it totally wrong. And apparently, Pilate believes that at least this part of what Jesus is saying. He declares in verse 38, I find no basis for a charge against him. Pilate saw Jesus as no political threat to Rome. But this doesn't mean Jesus is making no claim whatsoever with respect to the kingdoms of the world. Our Lord insists he is, he is King Jesus. Even if his source of authority is not in this world. And his servants will not defend him by resorting to arms. He's still the king. Nevertheless, the time will come, brothers and sisters, when all will acknowledge that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Philippians 2.9 Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. <clears throat> Christian, are you worried 
about the state of the world, about what's happening in the schools or in the courts? Are you worried about what's happening with injustice, crime, poverty, war, corruption, racism, all the rebellion of man against man, the fallout of human rebellion against our Creator God? Does that worry you? Know this, the eternal Son of glory, King Jesus, mediates all of His Father's sovereignty in heaven and on earth. A sparrow does not fall to the ground without His divine sanction. And one day, justice is going to be done. And it's going to be seen to be done. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the King of the world, will judge the world in righteousness. And as such, universal homage must be paid to Him, and it will, it will be paid to Him. Every knee will bow before King Jesus. Every court, every dictator, every politician, every person in this room. Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every atheist, every Muslim, every Mormon, every Buddhist, every Jew, every Sikh, every Hindu, every secular materialist, everyone to the glory of God the Father. When will that day be? When will the time come when every person bows the knee to King Jesus and declares that he is God and that he has the right to rule? Well, the church does so now, today. But on the last day, every knee, even the knees of the most hardened sinners, the most wicked of demons, even Satan himself will be irresistibly compelled to this act of submission. On that day, no one will be able to resist King Jesus' mighty power. His enemies will be made his footstool. And all who have raged against him and his kingly rule will be put to shame. Because as we read in the book of Revelation, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Pontius Pilate, of course, understands very little of this. All he knows is Jesus has made some sort of claim to be a king, so he pushes farther. He says in verse 37, you are a king then. Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. You're, you're correct in saying that, Pilate. But then Jesus qualifies the nature of his kingship by describing the reason for his kingly mission. It's to reveal God in his Son who is the truth. The fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Jesus is the truth incarnate. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Jesus is the true light. He is the true temple and the true bread from heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. King Jesus is God's truth. King Jesus is God's revelation. And it's through Jesus that God's person and will are finally and ultimately disclosed to the world. Similarly, only those who are rightly related to God, to the truth itself, can grasp Jesus' witness to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to Jesus. And 
there's an invitation in Jesus' words here to Pilate, isn't there? Jesus is inviting his judge to be his follower. He, the imprisoned, offers his judge true freedom. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, Jesus says. And that invitation is to us all. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to Jesus. But Pilate terminates the interrogation with a curt and cynical question. What is the truth? What is truth? And just as abruptly he walks out, either because he's convinced that there is no answer or probably more likely he just doesn't want to hear it. Thus proving he is not amongst those whom the Father has given to the Son. A major theme in John Gospel. With this he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. So that's it. It's over. The trial's done. As far as Pilate is concerned, Jesus is not politically dangerous. Case closed. He's the governor. But he offers the religious authorities another option. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. All four canonical Gospels tell us a little bit about Barabbas. Uh, the composite picture that we get is that he's a zealot. Uh, to Rome's thinking, he is a terrorist. That's who the zealots were, uh, who had participated in a bloody insurrection against Rome. For the zealots, violence against Rome was justified as long as it accomplished a, a very good end, and that good end would be the deliverance of the nation from the Roman oppressors. Uh, thus, at the instigation of the chief priests, who normally had nothing to do with zealots and others who were interested in armed rebellion against Rome, they did not, they did not participate in that kind of stuff, uh, the crowds call for the release of a man who had committed murder in his struggle against the state while condemning a man falsely accused of being a danger to Rome. So Pilate must be thinking at this point, well, that, that didn't pan out. <laughs> Why in the world did I make that offer? 19.1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Now that might seem strange to us. Uh, Pilate has just declared Jesus to be innocent, right? And so why does he have him flogged, whipped? Actually, this is a fresh strategy on Pilate's part to set Jesus free. The ancient Romans had three kinds of flogging. I'll spare you their official titles. I, my Latin's terrible. Uh, but... The first, they actually do all have official names. The first was a beating that was meted out for relatively light offenses, such as you know, getting drunk and rowdy and being a hooligan. And it was often accompanied by a severe warning. That was the first kind of whipping that you get. Uh, the second was a brutal flogging to criminals whose offenses were more serious. And the third was the most terrible scourging of all, and one that was always associated with other punishments, including crucifixion. The victim was stripped and tied to a post and then beaten by several soldiers until they were exhausted or until the commanding officer just called them off. And then they were flogged. Then they were whipped. Eyewitness reports tell us that because the whips had pieces of lead and metal uh, embedded in the straps, great chunks of flesh would be ripped away, exposing the vertebra and the bowels. The whipping that Pilate meets out here in verse 1 is the least severe form. But after the death sentence is passed, Jesus receives the most severe flogging. 
And it, it doesn't take long for Jesus to die. He's too weak even to carry his own cross all the way to Golgotha. So, Pilate orders a flogging, which he thinks will meet the Jews' demand for Jesus to be punished and perhaps evoke a little sympathy for him as well and thus dissipate this, this clamor for crucifixion. Verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Notice that all their abuse is centered around the ludicrous notion of a Jewish king. They make a crown of thorns. They clothe him in a purple robe. Purple is the color of royalty. The other gospel accounts tell us that they placed a reed in Jesus' hand, a scepter, and then they beat him on the head with it and spat upon him and knelt mockingly before him. All this abuse revolves around the idea of Christ's kingship, his kingship. But once again, Jesus' opponents, in this case Gentiles, they speak and they act better than they know. Jesus is king. He's the creator of the universe. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And bear in mind, the father delivered his son over to these soldiers to be abused in this fashion because he so loved the world. Jesus endured these outrages out of obedience to his father and love for his bride while we were still his enemies. Verse 4. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And so Jesus is brought out looking a very sorry sight, dressed in his bloody royal robes and a thorny crown. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. And of course, his words are dripping with irony. Here's the man that you find so dangerous and, and, and threatening. Can't you see he's harmless, how ridiculous he is? Verse 6, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. You, you bring this man to me for trial, but you won't accept my judgment. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The trial's over. Verse 7, the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Now, from their point of view, that is a blasphemous claim. Jesus claims not simply to be the Messianic King, he claims to be so related to God that he is unique. Remember all that Jesus said about himself and his relationship with God the Father in John 5. They wanted to kill him in John 5. From their perspective, Jesus is threatening the very deity of God. But Pilate comes from a pagan background. This man is superstitious. Verse 8, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. Maybe, well, maybe Jesus does have something religious going on here. Maybe, maybe he's some kind of divine man, a magic man. Verse 9, he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? But Jesus gave him no answer. 
Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Which is a stunning response. Beloved, how does Jesus view all these goings on around him? He certainly does not see himself as being a martyr caught up in some web that he can't control. However, what he says in verse 11 does not, it does not exonerate Pontius Pilate. His sin is only relatively less than that of the person who handed Jesus over to him. The fact that he would not have had any authority over Jesus apart from heaven's sanction does not absolve Pilate of all responsibility. Pilate is guilty for his spineless, politically motivated decision. Jesus' crucifixion is an absolute miscarriage of justice. This is, this is sinful leadership. But he's less blameworthy because his role is relatively passive. He didn't engineer and initiate the betrayal that brought Jesus into the court. So the identity of the person guilty of a greater sin is probably Caiaphas, the high priest. He took a leading part in the plot against Jesus, and he, he formulated the charges against our Lord. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. And he could have just done it like that. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Again, more irony. In order to execute Jesus, the Jewish authorities make themselves out to be more loyal citizens of Caesar than the hated Roman official himself. We're the royal Romans, they're, they're kind of saying. It's a very shrewd political move. Uh, there's an implied threat here, isn't there? The Jewish leaders are basically insinuating they're going to, be, they're going to ruin Pilate's political career. They're going to squeal on him to Caesar if you don't punish this king who opposes Caesar, Pilate. So, Pilate sinfully, wrongfully capitulates. That's what does it. Verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. He's making fun of them. Right? He's saying this bloodied, helpless prisoner is the only king you're ever going to have. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Oh, blasphemy. By vehemently insisting that they have no king but Caesar, they're not only rejecting Jesus' claims to be the Messiah, they are abandoning Israel's messianic hope just as a matter of principle. They're rejecting any claimant to that office as being the Messiah. We have no king but Caesar. And finally, they're disowning the kingship of the Lord God himself. Blasphemy. This is the ultimate evidence in support of the prologue's pronouncement. Chapter 1, verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And Pilate's not stupid. He knows that this professed allegiance to Caesar is a complete sham. 
It's all political hypocrisy. They just want Jesus to go to the cross. Verse 16, finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. And it was common for the person, as he staggered along carrying the cross, to have around his neck a little sign with the charge written on it. Then when you got to the place of execution, right along the main road, so everyone could see, that was the whole point. You want the whole populace to see what's going down. You were laid down on the ground, and the cross member, it was called the patibulum, it was placed underneath you. Then the cross member, you were nailed to that cross member. And then the cross member was lifted up onto the cross, and you with it, and there you hung. And then they would take that little sign that was around your neck, and they would place it on top of the cross so that everybody passing by could see what the charge was. And the idea, of course, is to intimidate the populace. This is what happens if you rebel against Rome. And then they leave the, the rotting carcass there for a few weeks, too. The charge Pilate had arranged was this. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews... And the governor made sure it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Aramaic was the common language of the people in Jerusalem. Latin was the language of the military overlords, the Romans themselves. And Greek was the common language throughout the Roman Empire. It was a lingua franca. Everyone could speak Greek. The chief priest didn't like that sign one bit. Verse 21, don't write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. They don't want to be associated with Jesus. Pilate answers, <coughs> What I have written, I have written. And Pilate said this, of course, not because he's a man of great principle, but because he's still digging in the knife. He's saying, in effect, this is the only king you're ever going to have. And you, don't you ever forget it. I'm the one who's in charge here. This is your king of the Jews. And yet, Pilate's malice serves God's end, doesn't it? Jesus is indeed the king of the Jews. Great King David's greater son. The cross is the means of his exaltation and the very manner of his glorification. And the trilingual notice above his head is a proclamation of Jesus' kingship to the entire world. Thus, the two men most responsible for Jesus' death, Caiaphas and Pontius Pilate, are unwittingly prophets of the king that they execute. Beloved, Jesus goes to the cross not as some pawn in history, but the one who goes down this trap because this has been God's plan from eternity past to save his people. And what Jesus accomplishes on that wretched cross, we'll see next week, Lord willing. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, in humble adoration, we proclaim all hail King Jesus. Amen.